This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at WVEW.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon, we are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Indigo Radio, and our show is recorded and posted to SoundCloud and podcast on the iTunes store. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. So um, today our topic is um, the prison strikes that, that have been going on since August 21st um, through September 9th, um, and we will be talking about um, resistance within the prisons and um, sort of what, sort of just prisons in general. Mm-hmm. And so we have actually a couple of interviews to play for you all. We have Amani Sawadi, who joined us last month to speak with Anna about the prison strike and prison divestment. And then we're going to have an interview and play an interview with Paul Wright, who's the director of Human Rights Defense Center and the editor of Prison Legal News. And just to introduce ourselves, I'm Nick. I'm a local e- educator, and we're in the station with Nina. Great. Um, so do you want to start out with a so we can start out with a song where this is Rebel Diaz, um, Guilty. All right. All right. So while we wait for Nina to pull that up, I, we ended, Anna ended the last show um, on the national prison strike, which Amani had also joined us on that show um, with some numbers that I just like to repeat for people. And these are numbers from the Bureau of Justice, so straight from the government um, numbers. At the end of December 2016, upwards of six and a half million people were supervised by the U.S. correction systems, um, and those are adults. So 4.5 million were under community supervision, which is parole or probation, and around 2.1 million were in incarcerated. Um, and most of the numbers that I've read outside of uh, government numbers have said that between 2.2 and 2.5 million are in prison, and that depends as people are um, being pushed in, in and out of prisons, awaiting for trial um, and detained because they can't afford bail. So we're going to go to the song, and then we'll come back to talk about Vermont. The U.S. has the fastest growing prison population in the world. Well, it's like the real estate boom. Except, of course, the problem with real estate, you eventually run out of land. You never run out of people to put in prison. The capitalist system of America, the U.S. military, the FBI, CIA, ATF, ICE, Homeland Security, and the neighborhood police. Sold three fourths of Mexico in 1848, abducted Africans and then sold them slaves. Genocide against the natives, and for that we give thanks. Wrote their history books and made themselves great. There's two types of crime: power and survival. Crimes that deal with power are the ones you might not find, dude. Look at the trillions that were stolen from the Wall Street bailout, and Mumia's still stuck in a jailhouse. They sick, they killed little Ayanna Jones. She was seven years old, man. The story gets old. Look at the wars, look at colonialism, look at the trade agreements and the profits from their prisons. We know the aggressor, they train them in Georgia, at the school of the Americas, where they teach torture. My father's a survivor, he talks about it often. Thousands disappeared, no funeral across it. And I can't harm them without the charge of terrorism, but they the terrorists, I charge their whole system. From the filthy politicians to the lying professor Guilty as charged, we convict the oppressors Yeah, we plead our case, day To the crooks, stole the book, day In the court of the people, we beam them Pay the debt to society, turn what they been robbing To the racist, hate and ethnic studies To the rich, cutting school funding To the bosses, denying our right to unionize We say, they are Guilty as charged no immunity clause, no impunity, nah, put it behind bars, get them all, the killer cops, the gentrifiers on the block, the CIA black ops, 
undercover Overseas and on your corner At the border Big brother trying to control us Hold up, what is we facing? Guilty by association That's how they profile racially Slavery been abolished That's common knowledge Except they put a clause in See it's legal if you're locked in To keep making profit They keep wages low By keeping the sector of society out of work Unemployed Roam the streets Precincts deployed More police Capture and contain, ain't much change Racist capitalists aim to keep us in chains I rest my case, they Alright, welcome back here with Indigo Radio I'm Nick and Nina's with us today on the board um, In the studio we're talking about the national prison strike Which ends today So just to talk a little bit about Vermont Nina, um, Anna had given us numbers on the last show, and so I just wanted to repeat them that about 1,600 people are incarcerated and held in Vermont, and another five to 700 are in prison outside the state. So it costs about $60,000 to hold a person prisoner in Vermont. Um, so a conservative estimate with the number of prisoners that are being held is about 100 million per year. Yeah. Which is a lot of money. Right, and a lot of that money or like it's like where does the money go right because um prisons you know you have to feed them and then the money goes to aramark or sodexo mm -hmm. and you have to clothe prisoners and where does mm -hmm. that money go so the money ultimately um comes out of public funds into private hands right and a lot of even if a prison itself is not privatized the services in the prison are yeah. so like sending an email through an emailing system that emailing system is purchased by the state from a corporation right. um, is just an example and so we're talking about prisons because there has been an, uh, a prison strike going on since August 21st it ends today and it is in response to the prevailing prison conditions inside the US and so jailhouse lawyers speak out of South Carolina called for the strike, which started on a day commemorating the death of uh, the murder of George Jackson. And it ends today, which is September 9th, on the commemoration of the Attica uprising. So just to give you a, a little brief history about Attica, Attica was, um, is a New York state prison. And in 1971, uh, there was an uprising that took place and prisoners were calling for and demanding for better living conditions and political rights. So around 100, uh, I'm sorry, around 1,000 people in prison in Attica rose up to take control of that facility and four days of negotiation followed. I wanted to read actually some words from a prisoner who had spoke on behalf of um, the incarcerated people inside of Attica at that time. His name was Elliot James Barkley and he was only 21. So he said, we are men, we are not beasts, and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. The entire prison populace, that means, that means each and every one of us here, have set forth to change forever the ruthless brutalization and disregard for the lives of prisoners here and throughout the United States. And so in Attica, there was 27 demands, and among them were, it was something similar to the demands of today, the strike today. So better medical treatment, fair visitation rights, um, please don't ration our toilet paper, we want more, sho more showers, better sanitation, um, improved food quality and so what ended up happening at Attica was that there was negotiations that took place between the incarcerated people that had risen up and the state and so the head of New York at that time the governor of New York at that time was Nelson Rockefeller and he refused to meet the demands of prisoners particularly the provision of amnesty um, after that uprising ended. And so what ended up happening was the National Guard was called in, there were local and state troopers that were called in, and literally there was just a barrage of bullets um, that ended up killing 29 people who were incarcerated and 10 hostages. Yeah, um, and I think it's what it's so difficult for for this particular issue because 
the way the public views prisoners, mm-hmm. right? And so they see prisoners and they think they've come into some kind of crime and they belong there. Um, and so a lot of, you know, strikes and have been difficult, I think, within the prison system and, and really getting people outside to, to stand in solidarity with prisoners mm-hmm. um, because their their interests are, are with us. They're like us, laborers and right. workers. And, and so I think also the idea is that there's this assumption that once someone has committed a crime, um, whatever whatever that crime is, mm-hmm. um, that once they enter a prison, they're no longer a human, when in reality that's not the truth. Prisoners are making a lot of the things that we use daily. Right. Um, and, so, yeah, I mean, I think what has to also be thought about is why did they commit that crime in the first place? Mm-hmm. And which brings to another conversation, which we probably won't get into today, right. of like <laughs> poverty and right. what caused the poverty. And so yeah. we have to look at the larger picture of why they were put there, mm-hmm. who's put there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Right. And I think that um, our interviews will get into that a little bit. Um, and I think that it's interesting also that most people in prison in the U.S. have committed nonviolent crimes. And yeah. so we have to remember that when we think about people are in living in prisons and not only are they forced to work um, in many ways, but these are their living conditions. And so right. how would we react? Um, and I mean, just to um, kind of make a connection to, to sort of a, a larger you know, over time, um, there's an article written um, in an article in a magazine called Monthly Review by um, Richard Vogel in 2003, um, entitled "Capitalism and Incarceration." Um, and so, people, the the unemployed, what he was trying to argue in his article is that unemployment within the country, war and imprisonment are all linked together. Mm-hmm. Um, that when there's a war, it absorbs the, the people who are not working. And so the, the prisons are not as filled. And then well, there is no war. So he, did, he crunched some numbers. And so during the Great Depression, um, I'm sorry, during World War II, there was a decrease in, in uh, sort of prison population. And then an increase right after. And then a decrease during the Vietnam War. And then an increase again right after. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to see this like larger correlation between unemployment, war, and prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, in light of Attica, the 1980s and Reagan, it was in retaliation, right? So here, prisoners rising up and then sort of the state retaliating against that. Um, the that's sort of when the mass incarceration really um, kicked up. And, and to really, you know, the U.S. since then, the U.S. is de-industrialized, meaning there are no jobs. Um, and so what do you do with that extra labor on the streets? Are we going to let them starve and rise up and, and change society, or are they going to just get absorbed into the prison system? So just the connection there. And that's also another really interesting point, Nina, because most of the time people are like, oh, the factories are have gone. Production has left the U.S. And really, there's this hidden production that's happening inside of prisons. Right. And so corporations and companies don't need to pay people outside of prison to produce because they can utilize um, state facilities and private facilities and pay people less than 40 cents an hour and make so much more profit. Absolutely. So, yeah, putting up these tariffs against, like, production abroad almost makes sense, I guess, to bring the production back here into the prisons, Mm. possibly. All right. So we're going to go to this um, interview with Amani Sawari. She is a writer, poet, and organizer working on behalf of the national prison strike that began on August 21st. She was recruited by the group Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, an incarcerated group of prisoners, prison rights advocates. She takes guidance from the group, and her website is hosting the strike. Um, you can find that on the Indigo Radio web uh, Facebook page. And thanks to Anna for interviewing her. I'm here with uh, Amani Sawari, and Amani is with 
the is working on behalf of the jailhouse lawyers speak and we just want to get a couple of updates about the strike which is ending on September 9th. So Amani, can you give us just a general update of the strike as it's nearing the end of the date? Yeah, so strikers are still facing heavy repression on all fronts. Um, lockdowns have been going down, leaders have been sent to solitary, people participating have been sent to solitary. Hunger striking seems to be the most popular effort, although boycotts and commissary boycotts, telephone boycotts, things like that, are very hard for us to record at this time. So we're really waiting to get all our final reports until after the strike ends and communication lines open up a bit more for prisoners. But at this point, we are in at least 12 states and at least 30 prisons in those 12 states. So California, there are two prisons. Florida, there's five. Georgia, there's two. We've got Indiana in one, Michigan in one, Texas in three, New Mexico, we've got one, and also in New Mexico's Lee County facility, they have been on lockdown status since the morning of August 20th. In North Carolina, we've got three prisons. In Ohio, we've got at least two prisoners striking in the Toledo Correctional Institution. David Easley and James Ward were both moved to isolation for participating in the strike. And mm -hmm. uh, the officials there have cut off their outside communications. So on top of them being moved to isolation, uh, a lot of prisoners have also not been allowed to make calls or send mail out or receive mail. Their mail is being heavily censored, so they're suffering from really, really high uh, effects of repression. Uh, South Carolina, we've got six institutions there participating. Also, we've, we've got two federal prisons at least. FBI Manchester in Kentucky and FBI Edgefield in South Carolina. Uh, and then we've also seen solidarity out, outside of the U.S., overseas in Nova Scotia, Canada, Palestine, and Germany. We've yeah. had solidarity letters written from, sorry, Greece as well. And how are some of the, the information that you have with such heavy repression and silencing of those voices, how is the information getting out? Information is getting out majorly through direct communication with prisoners. So they'll write a letter or loved ones, family members of prisoners who are we are relaying that those messages from the prisoners to our organizers. Okay. So although repression is high, prisoners have still been able to get information out and give us as many numbers as they can at this stage in the strike. Mm -hmm. I think it's also, I'm glad that you just touched on the solidarity also outside of this country. And mm -hmm. I know that we've seen that with um, Black Lives Matter and Palestine also. And I feel like there has been a long history of connection between those struggles. And, you know, many yeah. people say um, Gaza is an open air prison. And uh, I think it's, always inspiring to see those connections definitely and also to help educate people about those connections yeah and knowing that prisoners in other countries overseas are receiving word about the national prison strike there's no yeah. doubt that it spread very far in our own country yeah the other question i had for you is in moving forward is there so post september 9th when it officially goes till has there been any word about ongoing organizing or how they're feeling about what can happen next yeah definitely so jls reached out to me earlier this week wanting to establish a coalition so with all of the endorsing organizations and businesses and groups that have signed on and have been participating in the strike and supporting the strike through solidarity events and things like this, raising awareness. They are calling for these groups and individuals who are interested, who hear about this in the media or who are passionate about making sure that prisoners' human rights are protected to form a coalition that is dedicated to fulfilling or seeing the fulfillment of each of the prisoners' 10 demands of the strike. So really the strike has brought this conversation to the table. It's made criminal justice reform a 
a primary uh, discussion point for a lot of politicians. It's changed the narrative for the masses on who prisoners are from animals that need to be controlled to people who are seeking resources for rehabilitation. And it's, it's grown this sense of solidarity between prisoners. It's helped them understand that they can organize and that they can get their views into the forefront of America's discussions. So prisoners mm-hmm. want to take that energy and transform that into a coalition that is committed to getting these 10 demands fulfilled, whether that be through writing letters to legislatures or making petitions, raising funds uh, to uh, provide rehabilitation resources, um, targeting companies that are still using prison labor, um, mm-hmm. really just hitting each of those points because we know that this is going to take longer than two and a half weeks. The two right. and a half weeks were kind of the the show and tell. Prisoners are risking their lives and their livelihood. A lot of prisoners lost their jobs as a result of work strikes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they're risking it all just to prove that this is an issue. And so it's our job to take the torch from them and to continue on the, the racetrack of this, if you will, until we get yeah. to the finish line, until every single yeah. demand is met. Yeah, and we uh, did a Brattleboro Solidarity, which Indigo Radio is a part of, did an event here in Brattleboro. We showed the Prison in 12 Landscapes, and mm-hmm. I think, and then we talked about the strike, too. And I think doing that event, and we also were part of an event that looked at poverty and the criminalization of poverty mm-hmm. that same week, is just how prison and those conditions also infiltrate into our communities. And so, like you said, it is this ongoing struggle and conversation for people to also make those connections. Yeah, definitely. And all of the events that have been happening nationwide targeting and in support of the prison strike have definitely drilled into people's brains what the issues Mm -hmm. are. And now prisoners, they want to be able to take the lead on providing solutions to those issues. They can't do the the political footwork because of the limitations of their circumstances, but they have been – immersed in these violent and oppressive environments, a lot of them for decades. And so they have had time to think out solutions that are Mm -hmm. thoroughly thought out and can really, really make transformative changes in our criminal justice system. And they deserve to be listened to. They've proven that that they should be listened to and that they can take the lead, especially in this type of movement. And so it's our job to really look to them and take their guidance and and follow them in support. Yeah, exactly. Well, Amani, I want to thank you for your time again. I know you're busy and thank you for your time. All right, and we're back. Welcome back to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. That was Anna, and she interviewed Amani Sawari this week. Um, I just wanted to repeat some of the sh- the demands of the imprisoned who are um, striking at the moment. Some of them are the improvement of prison conditions and the recognition of the humanity of prisoners. Another is an end to prison slavery, um, the possibility of rehabilitation and parole, and an immediate end to the racial overcharging, over-sentencing, and parole denials of black and brown humans, and that um, prisoners would like the right to vote, that prisoner votes should count. So we're going to go to a song break now before we play our um, interview with Paul, and we're going to listen to Michael Michael Jackson's They Don't Really Care About Us.
welcome back to Indigo Radio. This is WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. And so that was Michael Jackson, They Don't Really Care About Us. There's a, there's a version of that video that was published that is not the one that we just played, right, Nina? Right. So, I mean, the one that I'm familiar with mm-hmm. is um, his video that he took in Brazil in the favelas. Okay. Um, but this one's actually in the prisons. Right. So I find that interesting that it wasn't. So you can just look that up on YouTube as the prison version. So we're going to go to our uh, an interview with Paul Wright that was... Um, that was recorded this week. Paul Wright's the editor of Prison Legal News and the director of Human Rights Defense Center, um, both which were once based in Brattleboro, and now they are based in Florida. So thanks, Paul, for being on the show, and we hope you enjoy this interview. Hello, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us on Indigo Radio today. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Prison Legal News and why the organization started? Yes. um, Prison Legal News is a monthly magazine. We report on uh, legal news and developments involving prisons and detention facilities. And I started the magazine in 1990 while I was in prison in Washington State. And we started the magazine because we felt it was important and necessary for prisoners and our families have a voice in what passes for the criminal justice system and that we wanted to be able um, to basically communicate around what was happening and also be able to, um, you know, have a voice and, and organize around the struggle for progressive prison reform and change. And we started initially as a statewide newsletter and we've slowly grown. Uh, by the mid-90s, we're basically a national publication. And we had subscribers in uh, pretty much all 50 states. And these days we've got around 9,000 um, subscribers around the country. We also uh, published another magazine. We started a new magazine um, late last year called Criminal Legal News. And basically that reports on policing and criminal law and procedure and sentencing issues like the death penalty um, three strikes and parole and probation and things like that. So those are kind of some of our broad activities. And as some of your listeners may recall, um, I lived in Brattleboro from 2004 until 2013, and our office was in West Brattleboro right above the post office for a number of those years. Right. And so for our listeners who want to find out more about your organization, where can they go? If you want to find out more about prison legal news and what's happening there in prisons and jails, you can go to www.prisonlegalnews.org. If you want to know about the criminal law system and policing issues and mass incarceration, you can go to www.criminallegalnews.org. And all of our issues of both magazines are available online. And we also operate, in addition to the print uh, monthly magazines, we also operate a free daily um, e-newsletter that people can sign up for on those websites as well. Wonderful. Thank you. And we'll make some links to our pages as well. Can you, so you both have experience inside prison yourself and also reporting on prisons for 30 years now. Can you describe what you know about the prison conditions in the U.S.? Yes, basically the, um, you know, I think it's just fair to say that prison conditions in the U.S. range from horrific to barbaric. And they've seen a steady, a steady decline in the last uh, 25, 30 years or so. Um, They're generally pretty bad before, and they've steadily gotten worse for various reasons. And but the biggest one is just you know the indifference, if not the outright hostility, by uh, politicians and the executive and legislative branches of government um, to the prisoners in their care, so and custody. So just basically. As the prison population has expanded exponentially, the conditions have also worsened exponentially. And a big part of the problem is just that um, pretty much no one in a position of power in this country um, really cares about how how prisoners in custody are treated, um, how they're kept captive, or things like that. And so you see uh, the prison population continues to rise and grow on the one hand, and then on the other hand, it's also 
um, in addition to rising and growing, uh, the conditions continue to worsen and get worse and worse and worse. Mm. And it's interesting because we're taught that prisons are places for rehabilitation for people who have done wrong in society. Can you comment on that idea? Yeah, I don't even know that it's even an idea anymore in, in the United States. Um, there was some lip service paid to that notion back in the uh, maybe in the 1970s, briefly. That and the main thing that seems to have come from that is that prisons changed their names to correction centers, prisoners became inmates, and guards became corrections officers. But um, I think that the primary purpose of prisons for all, if not most, of American history has been basically to destroy people as individuals and to destroy them and atomize them and basically establish the supremacy of the state and state power over its um, citizens. I don't, you know, the success stories are stories of people that came out of prison better when they came out than before they came in range from, you know, sparse to non-existent. So you don't really hear prison officials, you know, bragging or taking credit about all the wonderful work they've done in terms of helping prisoners become better people when they're released. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically the only thing they're really good at is caging people. And, you know, they can take as much pride as they want to in caging a population that is pretty much, with very rare exceptions, all poor and predominantly mentally ill, um, functionally illiterate, and, you know, otherwise disadvantaged. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of what the job is. Hmm. And you worked for a long time in Vermont, so I'm wondering if you could talk about any specifics to the conditions or to the experiences of prisoners who are incarcerated in Vermont. Sure. I, I think that one of the things that, for me, um, one of the things that, that was good about um, seeing Vermont, and not just Vermont, but also the other New England states like New Hampshire and Maine and stuff like that is... Um, you know, I think on the one hand, there's this notion that um, because Vermont is, has a rep, enjoys a reputation as being politically progressive and whatever, that, you know, well, somehow its prisons must be better or and stuff like that. And in some respects, there's differences. Uh, Vermont prisons, <coughs> excuse me, um, generally don't have the brutality uh, or the violence, the levels of violence associated with a lot of other prisons, you know, either from prisoner-on-prisoner violence or staff-on-prisoner violence. But in other respects, though, they're very typical of prisons in the United States. The medical care ranges from bad to abysmal, and, you know, prisoners routinely die from a lack of medical care, from a lack of mental health treatment and care. That's number one. Uh, But the other thing that's really characterized Vermont for, like, the last 20 years is it's huge reliance on private prisons and keeping prisoners out of in out of state facilities because basically Vermont lacks the will or the financial wherewithal to build more prisons. So rather than building prisons, uh, they send Vermont prisoners out of state. And it's interesting because you know some of the proponents of mass incarcerations cite the use of prisons as basically or the attempted use of prisons as dungeons to economic development, where the notion is that by caging people, they um, they hire people to watch over the caged prisoners, and so therefore this is a jobs program, uh, generally for rural white disadvantaged communities. And what we see, though, is that, you know, because of that, uh, because of their sending uh, Vermont prisoners out of state, you don't even have that... Um, supposed um, beneficial aspect of mass incarceration where people are being provided jobs. So, And I think for the last, like, oh, I don't know, 10 years or something like that, various governors have promised to end the practice of sending Vermont prisoners out of state. But to do that would require that they, um, uh, that Vermont enact some type of meaningful sentencing reform, you know, and the two things that need to be done to reduce or end the sending of Vermont prisoners to private prisons out of state would be either an act sentencing reform um, to reduce sentences and reduce the number of people going to prison or build at least one more prison in Vermont to handle the excess prisoners. So far, that has not happened. Neither one of those has happened. But we see that whoever the 
the private prison contractor is at the time. They make regular donations to legislators. They make regular donations to the governor. And basically the Vermont taxpayer money, along with the prisoners, keeps flowing to these companies. Mm. I just heard that Mississippi won the, um, I guess, the bid for Vermonters to be going to prisons there, which is concerning since last month 13 prisoners died in custody. Right. And, and, you know, the thing is with all this is that, um, you know, this is a real race to the bottom. And, you know, when you talk about the bid, all too often the bids aren't, you know, the, the so-called bids aren't really decided in terms of, you know, who submits the lowest bid, but usually it comes down to who has the best lobbyist, who's greasing the wheels of government procurement the most. And in past years, uh, CCA or GEO or whoever had the contract at the time, They've been routine donors and contributors to the governor's inaugural fund and, you know, to the election campaign funds of, of various um, state officials. So, you know, that's kind of one of those ongoing, um, you know, that, that tends, those tend to be kind of like the ongoing um, issues with these companies. So they don't get these contracts based on, the merits of who can provide the best service for the lowest price, but rather they get them just to the extent that they, um, um, you know, have the best lobbyists and make the most campaign donations. Mm. And based on what you know, do you think that the conditions within private prisons are different than those of state-run prisons? Yes, they're definitely, um, you know, they're definitely different, whether or not they're better or not is, I think, relative. Um, ironically, in a place like here in Florida, the um, um, here in Florida, private prisons are definitely much better physic- in terms of physical conditions than the government-run prisons, but part of the reason for that is because the, um, the government-run prisons are so horrifically awful. And just to start off with, None of the government prisons in the state of Florida have air conditioning, whereas the private ones do. And so that in and of itself, I think, is just one of the the main things. But the key thing is the reason that the private prison companies, they've they've tried to argue or they've tried to claim that they can provide um, um, that they can provide services they can provide incarceration services cheaper than the government-run prisons can. And at the end of the day, um, they've never really been able to come up with um, with any real evidence that that is the case. But my point is that even if they do provide incarceration services and can cage people for less money than uh, the government does, the taxpayers and the government don't see any of that benefit because basically the difference between – what it actually costs them to run the prisons and what they charge the government is basically that's their profit margin. And because of that, um, what's come up with, what they've come up with is that the more, uh, the more money they get and the lower and the less or fewer services they provide, the more money they make. So one of the things that happens with this is that, um, basically there's just this relentless cost cutting, uh, corner cutting and everything else that they do to maximize their revenue. And the biggest expense in running a prison is the staffing level. So typically what you see, um, what you see the most of is that they, um, basically they short staff the facilities. And if their contract calls for having 400 employees, they'll see if they can get by with say 350 or 340 and they pocket the difference, um, as their as part of their profits. Yeah, and so you're kind of setting the stage for us describing the conditions in prisons for the current prison strikes that are happening that started on August 21st and they end on September 9th, which is the day that we'll be airing this show. I'm wondering if you can talk about what's been happening with the prison strikes, why people went on strike, what's been like what some of the updates are of those strikes, and how your work connects to those that resistance in prison. Sure. And, and I guess the part of the thing is I think that uh, it's important to understand that this is the first national strike. This is the second or third one that we've had. And what's really significant is that we're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing 
uh, prisoners for the first time attempt to organize on a national basis in terms of um, across state lines around the country, whereas um, I organized a statewide prison strike in Washington in the 1990s. At that time, that was the first time that had ever been attempted in Washington. Since then, we've seen uh, prison strikes in California and, you know, and in other states. So, you know, so I think this is uh, this is kind of like almost a qualitative and a quantitative uh, move forward that people have, um, um, you know, that people have done this. So, and I think this is, you know, I think it's really important in that sense. And we're seeing, I think, the idea spreading. And, you know, I think the, we're seeing the idea spreading. But I think what's really critical about this is that this is the first time in American history where prisoners as a class, and, and I think the numbers may be small now, but across the board, prisoners are basically rejecting the notion of being enslaved and disenfranchised. And, and I think one of the things is, you know, when I when I see the thing about, you know, how many prisoners are not participating, in a lot of respects, I don't think that it's so much how many are actually participating now, because I think when you look at the, um, if you look at issues in, in American history, like, say, for example, um, you know, uh, say the women's right to vote, for example, or women's suffrage. And, you know, I think when you look at that, how many women showed up for the first um, the first rally or protest uh, to demand the right to vote? And, you know, it, it was it was a small number. It was like 40 or 50. And I think that if anyone had said, well, just because not many women showed up to demand the right to vote, this means that the issue's over and, um, you know, they don't really care, you know, would have totally misread the situation because then the reality is that, um, you know, then you see each year the movement got stronger, it became a national movement, and it took decades, but eventually the Constitution was amended so that uh, women did secure the right to vote. And um, so I, th I think, you know, we've got a lot of examples of that in, the, you know, the non-prison context where, um We've seen these civil rights struggles. We've seen these these efforts to obtain more rights, and the fact that they start out small, I think, isn't really dispositive of you know much of anything. So much as the levels of repression um, by the slave masters, aka prison officials, and you know the the level of consciousness among the people seeking these rights. So when you say that, um, when you're comparing prisons to slavery or slave-like conditions, could you describe that a little bit more for our listeners who might not see the direct connection? Sure. I mean, I, th I think part of the problem is a lot of people think that the 13th Amendment to the Constitution uh, eliminated or outlawed slavery. In fact, it did not. The big problem with the 13th Amendment is that what it did was it limited slavery to um, it limited slavery to people who had been convicted of a crime. So you've got the reality, and this is what happened in the United States in the immediate aftermath of uh, the Civil War, is that a lot of newly freed slaves found themselves basically getting um, getting enslaved by um, by the state afterwards after they'd been convicted of crimes. In fact, it was convict slave labor that built the road system and the railway systems in the South after uh, the Civil War ended. So, you know, so that's, um, you know, that's, those are some of, that's some of the reality. And the bigger reality, and this is what prisoners are, um, you know, rebelling against is their status as slaves. And, and some people say, well, you know, it's not really, correct to call prisoners slaves, but, you know, when people are being forced to work and they're not being paid for their labor and they're punished physically and otherwise they refuse to work for free, you know, I mean, we have a word for that. It's called slavery. And what I find interesting, too, is that uh, this is, I think, a level of imperialist hypocrisy is that the United States bans the importation of convict-made goods. So basically it's illegal to import goods from other countries that they've been made by convict labor. Yet the United States actually exports goods made by convict labor to countries around the world. 
and they don't have any problem um, calling it the human rights violation it is when convict-made goods are going to be imported to the U.S., but then it's seen as good public policy or something you're proud of when our convict-made goods are being exported to other countries. Yeah, that's a very good point. So what are some of those examples of convict labor that are happening in prisons today? Well, we've got, um, you know, yes, some prisoners are working for private corporations, but generally it's not that many. Um, we've got around around 5,000 prisoners nationally that are working for private companies under what's called the um, uh, PI program or Prison Industries Enhancement Act. And this requires that prisoners uh, be paid at least the minimum wage or the prevailing wage. The reality is they're all paid the minimum wage. But beyond that, though, the kind of the bigger problem is that prisoners don't actually keep that money. Is on paper they may be paid, say, seven or eight dollars an hour, and then in reality they're taking home or keeping or being allowed to keep, um, you know, a dollar of it or a dollar fifty of it, if that. But even then, you know, we just don't see. Um, there just aren't that many prisoners doing that type of work. The second biggest category are the prisoners who are working in correctional industries, and these are the uh, prison slave industries that manufacture goods for the state, license plates being the most famous one. And, of course, you know, since this is Vermont, I'll have to say, you know, I've always thought that the biggest sense of irony are the New Hampshire prisoners that are cranking out um, license plates that say live free or die on them. Um, you know, I thought that's the height of irony. But, um, but anyways, you know, when we've, uh, but that's, those are just some of the examples of, um, of the, of that element of slavery is the prisoners doing that. And then the next biggest one, um, is, um, the prisoners who are actually responsible for running the prisons. And these are the prisoners that um, have to um, – these are the prisoners that have to work in the kitchens, that work in the laundries and things like that and ensure that um, prisoners are fed, that prisoners have um, – um, you know, the prisoners have uh, clean clothes and, and stuff like that. And this is all work that if it wasn't being done by prisoners being – either not paid anything or um, um, or paid, you know, nominal wages. I mean, and typically prisoners are generally paid so little it's not even called a wage. They just call it a gratuity. And so if you're faced with that, um, the, um, you know, those numbers go into the hundreds of thousands. And the whole thing, too, is that if prisoners weren't doing these, uh, slave jobs, then presumably the government would have to hire someone um, to do this work. They'd have to hire someone to um, to run the prison laundry. They'd have to hire someone to cook the food and things like that. So to the extent that they use prison slave labor, they are um, cutting down their costs and basically being able to run their mass incarceration system Cheap for less money than they otherwise would, and one of the practices that's gotten some that's gotten some attention has been there's been suits filed over it. Are private immigration prisons uh, using immigrant prisoner slave labor for a dollar a day to do everything from cook to clean and uh, stuff like that? And so there's a couple of lawsuits pending on on those issues. And so as the strikes have been happening, what has been the response of either the state or the prisons themselves to some of these work stoppages and other types of strikes? Basically, it's been very brutal repression. Uh, it's been uh, part of it is they've been, the first thing is placing prisons on lockdown coupled with, um, um, you know, they're, they're putting uh, prisons on lockdown. They're seeking the organizers of the strikes with the goal of, um, they're seeking strike organizers the goal of uh, punishing them. People, prisoners participating in uh, in the strike are being placed in solitary confinement. They're they're being disciplined and otherwise, um, you know, and otherwise being forced to um, um, 
you know, not to participate. And so I think this is part of the, you know, the overall strategy by prison officials is um, it, it literally it's the same as any organized entity that runs a slave system, whether it's Roman slavers, plantation slave owners of old here in the United States, Nazi Germany with their concentration camp systems. Um, you know, it's the whole thing. It's the same, um, you know, it's the same um, um, imperative that they have to keep, basically keep the slaves enslaved and working. And you, right before we began this interview, you sent me an uh, article from Jailhouse Lawyers Speak about the kind of manhunt happening for prison organi- strike organizers. So are those people being uh, targeted, the organizers, are they being targeted more than the actual participants of the strike? Yes, absolutely. Because I think it's like a lot of things is that, you know, what the, what the prison crats are terrified of is the people that can organize other prisoners and that have the wherewithal and the vision to both organize prisoners and um, basically get them to, um, you know, and basically get them to, um, uh, you know, challenge their status, their status of um, of slavery. So, you know, so that's, you know, that, that's just basically their whole, um, you know, that's basically like their whole thing. And that's what they're trying um, you know, that's basically what they're trying um, to do. Wonderful. And just as a final question, including you adding anything else that you'd like to add, what um, would you say, beyond this being like a national strike of organizing across many different states, what would you say is another inspiration of success coming out of these strikes? I think what's significant about it and inspirational about it is that for the first time in American history in our 240-year history, however long it's been as a nation, this is the first time or these are the first one or two times now that prisoners are aspiring to organize themselves as a class, as an oppressed population around these issues. And, And I think that one of the things that that one of the things that inspired me to start um, Prison Legal News and part of the reasons that I've kept publishing it is that I think that one of the key things is that um, is the notion that prisoners need the information to be able to organize and advocate for themselves because the reality is that no one else is coming to to rescue them. You know, there is no cavalry coming. You know, if you were if you were a concentration camp prisoner in Nazi Germany, you could you know kind of say, okay, let's let's just hold tight and try to survive this. And uh, the Allied army, the Americans and the British are coming in and to rescue us, or the Red Army is going to rescue us, and something like that. But if you're an American prisoner in these horrific prison conditions, um, no one's coming to rescue you. If you can't or won't organize for yourself or you can't or won't do anything for yourself, the reality is that you're really screwed. No one's coming to help you. And and I think this is being driven home, especially, you know, when you've got, like, you know, prison systems like in Florida, for example, where after they privatized the prison health care system, uh, we've got um, 500 prisoners a year dying, uh, almost all of them from treatable uh, uh, from treatable um, natural causes. And, you know, when you think about it, I mean, you know, 500 prisoners a year out of a prison system with 97,000 prisoners, that's almost like 0.5% of the prison population is dying annually of medical reasons. And this is the context that before they privatized the, um, before they privatized the uh, prison healthcare system, on average, 35 to 40 prisoners have died. So you've seen those numbers increase by over a thousand percent in a in a three-year time span. So that's pretty dramatic, and I think the prisoners are realizing that literally the choices for them are becoming organized or die. That their lives may very well depend on it. And, and I think these are the things that are. Um, I think these are the things that are changing. 
um, the perceptions and the reality of um, you know of being a prisoner and and the desire and the need to organize and it's kind of sinking in I think that if prisoners don't do this for themselves no one else is going to absolutely thank you Paul from Princeton Legal News so much for joining us today Thank you very much. And again, people can learn more about about us at www.prisonlegalnews and www.criminallegalnews.org. Wonderful. We will direct people to those links. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections on the air every Sunday at noon. That was Paul Wright. Um, he is the editor of Prison Legal News and director of Human Rights Defense Center. And we want to thank Paul for being on the show with us. And so we just wanted to recap a little bit and kind of comment on what Paul said. And so Nina had said at the beginning of the show, and I just wanted to repeat because Paul had also mentioned this, that a lot of the people in prison are poor. Mm-hmm. And that prisons serve as a function um, to hide the social problems that exist within our, within our country. And so I wanted to read this quote from Angela Davis from her book, Abolition Democracy. She wrote, instead of building housing, throw the homeless in prison. Instead of developing the education system, throw the illiterate in prison. Throw people in prison who lose jobs as a result of deindustrialization, globalization of capital, and the dismantling of the welfare state. Get rid of all of them. Remove these dispensable populations from society. According to this logic, the prison becomes a way of disappearing people in the false hope of disappearing the underlying social problem they represent. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I you know, to think about something that um, uh, that Paul had said um, you know, he, he used the word supremacy of state power, that prisons are sort of a show of force of the supremacy of state power. But then I think, like, you know, the state is in alliance with corporations. Mm-hmm. And so, and corporations are the owners who hire the labor to do the work to produce things to sell um, in order for them to sort of suck up the, the profit. Um, from the things that are sold. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it makes a lot of sense that the state would be doing this. And, you know, and I think, like, that there's a, a level of, of triage. I, I, I use the word triage. Of like, in the moment. Like, in the moment, yes, we need to be um, on strike. We need to be in solidarity. We need to... to make sure that they're paid but at the same time like in the same breath in your own mind that we you know in in all all our minds that we have to also be be challenging um and opposing this state system that's actually has constructed this state system and this economic system right and i i mean i think you're right the state has created the laws in which the corporations operate and so it is legal to imprison people and enslave them and so therefore to pay them 40 cents an hour 10 cents an hour whatever they're being paid so not only is the state as paul said using that cheap labor to run its own essentially a factory within Mm -hmm. a fence um, but also it's allowing corporations to come in have starbucks right Uh, package coffee Mm -hmm. victoria's secret there's so many ways in which um, corporations benefit from prison slavery and Mm -hmm. so what's also interesting is that um, and Corey talked about this a little bit on the last show is that there are a lot of ways in which we ourselves invest in prison labor not Mm -hmm. only by purchasing um products but for those of us that make salaries and have 401ks or retirement plans um, our investments maybe even in banks Mm -hmm. um, that invest in prison labor and prison corporations so those are things to to keep in mind yeah so we wanted to say thank you to Amani and Anna and Becca and Paul and we're going to go out with a song 
what's the show next week? Do we know? Next week, the show is actually Chris and Henry are going to be in the studio, and they're going to be doing a show on the book called Lies My Teacher Told Me, Oh, okay. James Lowen's book. Yep. And they're going to be talking a little bit about fake news and, and what we teach and how we teach Great. in our classrooms. And they are both teachers currently, mm-hmm. one at BUHS and one up in Springfield, Vermont. So mm-hmm. that'll be an interesting show. Um, so we're going to go out with a song by Steel Pulse called George Jackson. Scared.